Hello, Conscious Capitalists, and, and welcome to uh, this conversation that we are really excited about, uh, that, that we've had had in the works for a little while, but definitely are, are excited to, to welcome so many so many new faces and, and really was, was excited to see a lot of registrations come in. So uh, coming in from all over, and, uh, and I know that there's a few, few first timers on the call, which is always exciting. Uh, and the other thing that, that can sometimes be exciting is that even though we're the Rochester chapter of Conscious Capitalism, uh, we have some, some participants from over the country uh, that they can join us with, without too much, uh, too much effort. So uh, welcome to all of those even outside of Rochester. I think that you'll, I think that you'll find that, that this conversation uh, really by, by nature is, is pretty, pretty global in terms of what is the future of Conscious Capitalism uh, especially after COVID, after the racial unrest that's been going on in our country, after so many things uh, have been upended, really. Uh, I, I think one, one of the things that we've been talking quite a lot about is what, what really that, that future looks like. But, you know, in, in some ways, uh, you know, shame on us if we try to go back to, to what normal used to be, because normal cl clearly wasn't working. And, uh, and, and how can we make that, that new normal a, a better normal? A more inclusive normal, and uh, and so just really briefly, uh, before we get started, I did want to thank, first of all, thank our uh, our sponsors. So uh, thank you to our visionary partners at at Accelerate Clean Craft and and the Bonadio Group, and also to our sustaining partners at Benefit Link, Homely Singh, Nazareth College, SWBR, Two Point Capital Management, and Grit Health. Uh, really couldn't do it without uh, without your support, but but also without uh, all of you that are really exemplifying conscious capitalism in our community. Uh, so we're deeply grateful for that. And as I mentioned, we do have a few first timers. So uh, for those that have that have been around a while, uh, excuse the 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 long introduction, but uh, we'll just give a really brief overview of what conscious capitalism is and and what our chapter aims to do. So. Uh, conscious capitalism, many of you know, is, is based on four key tenets, and uh, and the first of those being a, a higher purpose beyond just making profits. You know, you need profits to survive. You got to keep the lights on, but the purpose of the company can and, and maybe even should go beyond that. Uh, in addition, there's a stakeholder orientation, which I'm sure we're going to hear quite a bit about uh, during this conversation. Rather than just prioritizing the needs of the stockholders, what about the the customers, the community, the employees, the environment? Uh, really this whole ecosystem that, that needs to surround and support the business for, for long-term success and being able to make decisions uh, that are in the best interest of all of those stakeholders. There's also conscious leadership, uh, which we're going to hear a little bit about, uh, about the conscious leadership journey of, of, of both Alexander and Curtis, uh, as well as the conscious culture that, that really takes a look at how do we value and prioritize the, the well-being and, and the growth of, of all of our employees and, and really kind of create that culture where, where they can grow and thrive. And so the great news is that uh, some of the original studies that were done by, by Raj show that uh, Raj Sisodia, who, who wrote the, the, the original book, Firms of Endearment, and, and several conscious capitalism related books ever since, uh, really, really saw that these companies actually end up outperforming their competitors in the long run, which is uh, great that it's a it's a win-win-win. So, so that is really what uh, we're here to talk a little bit about today, but also just to, to talk a little bit about what we're doing at the chapter level is if those companies are able to, to be more successful in the long run, the, the vision of our chapter is, is to really be 
both students and teachers of these conscious capitalism principles uh, so that we can bring them into our own lives and into our own companies. And really, we see this as potential for an economic development strategy for the Rochester region. You know, what if we became known as a hub of conscious capitalism? If, if it's so successful for the companies that are practicing this, what if we became a hub of, of conscious capitalism where we had more purpose-driven businesses, uh, we, we could then grow our regional economy, but also grow it in a more inclusive way, uh, have more jobs where, where people are, are happy to come to work, and, and also be doing great things for all of, all of the people in our region, uh, for the environment of our region, and, and certainly growing that uh, with many different hubs, as you'll get to see today, that there really is a, a gl growing global movement of conscious capitalism, which we're, which we're really excited about and excited to have both, both Alexander and Curtis here today to talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm going to, in just one minute, hand it over to, to Alexander to, to really give uh, a little bit of a, almost an interview of, of Curtis to hear about his conscious leadership journey, uh, why he uh, at, at improving really, really has has uh, that the, the conscious capitalism principles really ingrained into the DNA and the ethos at improving. Uh, we're then going to hear a little bit about from Alexander about what's going on at Conscious Capitalism Inc. And, and some of the things that they're working on, maybe some of the other, what the other chapters are working on. And, uh, and finally, we're, we're going to open it up for, for questions from all of you. So uh, please feel free as they're, as they're talking to throw any, any questions into the chat. I might cut in while they're talking if it makes sense to you know throw in one of those questions, uh, or we we will probably save many of them until the end. So uh, throw throw those questions in there. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Alexander McCobin, who has been the CEO of Conscious Capitalism Inc. since 2017, after serving as co-CEO starting in 2016. Alexander holds a BA in Philosophy and Economics from the University of Pennsylvania, a Master's in Philosophy from the University of Pennsylvania and a master's in philosophy from Georgetown University. In his youth, Alexander's entrepreneurial drive led him to start and run several businesses, both for-profit and nonprofit. During college though, he didn't see business as a way to change the world. He thought the way to do that was through academia. So he began a PhD program in philosophy at Georgetown. And as he began to work on a dissertation regarding corporate moral responsibility, he attended the first Conscious Capitalism Annual Conference in 2013, where he was inspired by business leaders dedicated to changing the world. Within a year, he left Georgetown without the PhD and dedicated himself to running one of the businesses he had started during undergrad. Before he joined Conscious Capitalism International staff, he turned that organization into a multi-million dollar operation. In his spare time, Alexander likes to read, hike, run, dive, kayak, and cook. He feels most at home when he's in the Pennsylvania mountains and the California coast. His favorite joke, here, get ready for this. A chemist, a physicist, and an economist are shipwrecked on a desert island with one can of beans and no can opener. Sitting around trying to figure out what to do with their predicament, they each propose a solution. The chemist says, if we rub salt water on the lid, it will erode the edges and we can open it. The physicist says, if we triangulate the sun's rays, we can heat the can until the lid open, explodes open. The economist says, let's assume we have a can opener. So uh, without further ado, I will hand it over to Alexander and then, uh, and then to Curtis as well. And like I said, please throw some, some questions in the chat. We're really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you both uh, gentlemen for joining us. 
Well, thank you for that great intro, Andrew, and for everything that you and everyone who's joining us today is doing to build the conscious capitalism movement in the Rochester area. As we all know, 2020 was a chaotic, crazy year in so many ways. And for the conscious capitalism movement, there it was no exception. At the start of the COVID pandemic, outlets like the Financial Times said that we were facing the acid test for this concept of conscious capitalism, wondering whether the businesses that talked about having a higher purpose and stakeholder orientation, conscious leadership and conscious culture would stick with these principles during the most dire economic situation they've ever faced, or whether they would retreat to shareholder orientation, focusing only on the bottom line and nothing else. But as other outlets like Fortune, Alan Murray, the CEO, has been noting over the past year, companies have not run away from these principles. They've doubled down on them in many ways. They've seen that in order to get through this pandemic and these challenging times, they need to ele elevate their higher purpose to take care of all of their stakeholders. And there is an opportunity now for the entire conscious capitalism movement, both globally and locally, to build up more businesses on these principles to carry out this future vision for what a conscious capitalist future can look like. That is incredibly exciting. And I am excited to introduce to all of you, if you haven't met him yet, one of Conscious Capitalism's board members, Curtis Height, the CEO of Improving Holdings, who is an experienced entrepreneur, businessman, and I could read through his long list of accolades, ranging from, ranging from the fact that uh, the company has been uh, has been uh, included in the Inc. 500 and 5000 list, Dallas 100 and Aggie 100, recognitions from employees as one of the best places to work in Texas, as well as by the Dallas Morning News, the Dallas Business Journal, and Texas Monthly and others. But what I really want to do is give Curtis, this amazing individual, a conscious capitalist, the opportunity to share his story with you, and especially what he's seen over the past year and what's going on in the future from his perspective as a conscious capitalist leading a growing and successful business on these principles. So we can talk about both the conscious capitalism movement at the macro level and at the micro what's happening with each business. So Curtis, thank you for taking the time to speak with us in the Rochester chapter today and for everything that you're doing for conscious capitalism as an organization and as a model of conscious capitalist yourself. Well, thank you, uh, Alexander, and uh, very gracious of you. Um, I do want to reemphasize that at any time you have a question, Alexander and I have done this a few times with a few other chapters, and, and it's always most effective if we even curtail some of our conversations to meet the needs of the group. So uh, put something out in the chat, and Andrew or somebody can maybe monitor that and, and interrupt if one of us is, is speaking, make sure we address your questions and uh, make this your own conversation and and if we can. Now, Alexander and I are more than uh, uh, prepared to have our own conversation, but it's always nice if other people join in. Um, I am going to start with something that Alexander mentioned, is, and it's nothing profound, we all know, but but if you really slow down enough and look at 2020, it, it was really any one of these huge events would have been enough to be huge on their own, whether we're talking about the pandemic, 
whether we're talking about the economic crash the uh, across the globe in such a short period, or, or whether we're talking about um, uh, the BLM movement and, and some of our diversity and inclusion initiatives that have really been elevated uh, in 2020. And, and on top of that, at least in the United States, there was a highly contested and, and, and maybe polarizing presidential election uh, more than ever before. And any one of these things is huge. And we were fortunate enough to have four of them in one year. And what Alexander mentions is so true here is this is an opportunity. A lot of people view trials as uh, a, a tribulation or um, um, something to really hurts and they get down or they get depressed, they get afraid. Fear is very common in the environment that we have in 2020. But I wanna say that these challenges are honestly for entrepreneurs and businesses, perhaps one of the greatest opportunities. And I believe that's the case with conscious capitalism. It's been a year, honestly, which is hard for me to imagine when we met almost to the week now, when, when I got together with our leadership team and mentioned, yes, we are at all time highs, but I believe that the headwinds ahead of us are tremendous. And in that case, I was thinking one thing, COVID. I, I, I wasn't thinking the other three. And what I can say is we use conscious capitalism, if you really think about it, as the very underlying foundation. And that is what we refer to it. It is our philosophy. It is the foundation of the company we are. And we leaned into the culture aspect of that first, not the purpose. And I have a reason for that. Um, the reason for that is if you ever meet me and ask for a business card, you will find this saying on my business card. Adversity does not build character. It reveals it. And I think that's very important because the time is not to build. The time to build character is prior to any adversity we might face. What happens in adversity is it shows who we are. And the entire first meeting, I brought up what we call our identity. It's our entire sense of guiding principles. And we spent two hours remembering who we were going into this. That we were a, a dedicated group of individuals and team members. What does dedication mean at improving was that we think of others a little bit more but without thinking less of ourselves, It is this give and take that our success has been a consequence of everybody's involvement going into this and our success coming out of this or making through this will also be a consequence of everybody's involvement. That's our second value. And our third is a commitment to excellence. No matter what is ahead of us, right? We must do everything we can or near everything we can throughout this. And we define excellence as it's not some occasional habit or occurrence. It's a very, very consistent habit for us. And, and these three things coupled with our ambition of establishing trust with all of our stakeholders were at the forefront. And so one of the things I can say is when we went to our roots, we slowed down and didn't say, 
what are we going to do about the challenges ahead of us? We ask the very first question of who are we and how are we going to present ourselves when we know this crisis is coming forward? And, and for so long, we have really pushed these. They are very pervasive inside of our company. And I believe it's one of the reasons that we not only made it through, but have, have really come out the other side stronger than, than we went in. Curtis, I think you're absolutely right about all of that. And I'm actually reflecting on how it was a year ago, almost to the day when one of Conscious Capitals and Inc's team members said in an all hands meeting, so what's our plan for this COVID thing that people are starting to talk about with our conference coming up in a couple of months? And we had to start brainstorming what was going to happen. And it's incredible just how much has changed over the year. And honestly, how what could have been a, a threatening situation, not just with the pandemic, but everything else that's happened, as you've pointed out, to the conscious capitalism movement has been an opportunity to highlight the best of the movement and support leaders through this tough time. Now, but I go back a little bit, actually, and start from the beginning with you and ask, how, when did you first realize you were not just a capitalist, but a conscious capitalist and led you to build improving with this as your foundation? Um, uh Really, when I first realized I was a conscious capitalism is more about the language being used. It was in 2009, a, a colleague, friend of mine who runs a very large bank, um, the largest regional bank in, in the South, um, he invited me to this thing called conscious capitalism. And it was a CEO summit. It was in Austin. And I was terribly excited to go. And when I went, it, it was uh, both an exciting and intimidating event. Um, I was actually sitting next to, at the keynote, one of the presidents of, um, of Starbucks and Doug Rao, who had a very prominent role leading Trader Joe's at the time is on one side. So I'm intimidated. But at the same time, I was very proud and excited to hear what, what was to be said. Over the course of that conference, I was like, oh my gosh, this is who we are. No wonder Greg Massey, who runs this bank, invited because he had recognized. And that seems to be the most common story. I mean, there's probably many of you have a very similar story. So, oh, wow, I share these same values. I share these same beliefs. And at the forefront of those beliefs, I will tell you is Andrew pointed to this as well. And, um, but business is this great force of good. Capitalism is perhaps one of the most revolutionary ideas and has created more good despite any of the rhetoric you may hear. Capitalism has spread the good across the world more than any other concept I can think of. And like most things, yes, they can be abused and there are outliers, okay? But I wanna remind everybody, when you look at world poverty, when you look at some of the others and, and um, uh, statistics, business can be a force of good. And I am not ashamed of that. I am not afraid of that. I take a lot of pride in that. And what we can do as leaders is get more people to realize as Andrew mentioned, that our sole purpose of capitalism doesn't have to be simply to elevate the economies to bring people out of poverty. We can do more good than that. These businesses can, through purpose, 
can, yes, make money and create good in this world. And so it was back at that conference. I've been drinking the Kool-Aid ever since. Um, and and I will say I, I attribute this and our value of everybody's involvement, our philosophy of conscious capitalism and everybody's involvement in that as being the single biggest factors in the fact that we've been able to maintain growth for 14 consecutive years. Now, there are sometimes misconceptions about conscious capitalism that, that people hold with this. And since you've been building your company on, on these principles, Curtis, and you're on the board, I'm wondering if you could actually take a minute to talk about some of the misconceptions that you regularly see. And, and I know that you're passionate about making sure you clarify. Yes. Here. The first one Andrews mentioned again, which is a, a purpose beyond just making profit. And there is a misconception amongst conscious businesses or people that hear conscious capitalism that purpose is more important than profit. And that would be saying that something similar to purpose is more important than breathing. Right. When we really think about the air that companies breathe as profit, we must have profit to live into purpose. So there's a very, I would say, misconception number one is purpose at all costs. I've seen so many companies go under and boy, did they have great ideas and great purpose, but they couldn't thrive because they didn't realize that it is this relationship between profit and purpose, not one over the other. And so purpose beyond profit is a great way of saying it and live into that. The other uh, second misconception I would say is conscious business. And most people, when they hear conscious, think, oh, it must be a social purpose. That, that's not true. Okay, there are all types of purposes that business can can have it, Yes, it certainly can have a social force for good. It can be a community force for good. I see a question here about the environment. There can be environmental forces of good. And there can also be industry forces of good. Certain our industry, I'm in the technology industry, suffers from its own pandemic inside. And that is trust, trust amongst CEOs. We have the second worst perception of all profession on CEOs, and that's unfortunate. I mean, we can own it, and I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not a blame game, but our purpose is rooted in changing that perception, which is real. So we have an industry perception. So myth two is that if you're a conscious business, your single biggest cause, your single biz biggest purpose must be social. No, there's so many different types of good that we can do. And this is what's so great about capitalism and business is there's room for it all. It's a huge blue ocean out there if you're familiar with the concept. And then the last thing I would say is don't get tied up in the word conscious too much. Again, it's a misconception when people happen, happens even inside our company. We make a decision, they go, oh, they call themselves a conscious business. How could they do that? They might be under, misunderstanding the term conscious. Conscious does not associate with righteousness. And I want people to really uh, settle in with that word, right? Conscious is more associated with a sense of awareness and empathy than it is with there is a right and a wrong. And too many people, when they hear conscious, assign a concept of their morality onto that word. 
And I want to encourage everybody on this call to take a step back. Consciousness is about empathy and awareness more than it is about I have the right answer or whether I get to determine what morality is. And so I would say those are three common misconceptions, traps that many people fall into when it comes to conscious business. And I think that's a great segue into actually one of the first questions we've got from Karen Salmon. Karen, it's great to see you on with us and that we, we wanted to talk about as well, which is that in the last 10, 12 months, there have been challenges for every business. I know that improving has gone through some big challenges, including some that people might have said weren't conscious or made, made that accusation against you as you went through this. And so I wonder if you could share what you've been through and how you've navigated this time at improving. Absolutely. I started with our guiding principles because before ever going to the solution, as I mentioned, reminder of everybody that this is our time to reveal who we are, right? And, and the remind everybody who we are. And that has been at the forefront of every conversation. In fact, at one of our town halls, and we have over a thousand people and we do broadcast these, one of the town halls, someone asked the question, which is welcome. Are you going to continue to waste our time with emphasizing the values again? That was one of the questions, right? And, and yes, that stung, right? But yes, there are people that have that perception and, and that's okay as well. But the reality of the time I answered this is, yes, I'm going to continue to take the time at the forefront of every single one of our town halls because it is a time like these, these times of adversity where our culture is what will keep us standing. Our culture is what will get us through this. We had people that took voluntary salary decreases, right? Just because of the things were going on. We lost 30% of our business in one month. And we're not a small business. That's huge. And by the way, there are businesses that lost 80%, 90% of their business in a month. But we then focus, one of the things we did is we took our stakeholder model and it was one of our first steps. And before saying, what are we doing to preserve ourselves? We said, we have a lot of stakeholders. How are we gonna work with our stakeholders of which our company is ourselves? So we also went to that stakeholder model. And I can give you example after example, whether it's what we did with some of our communities and we're a big community, we support 25,000 people just in our space a year, letting them use it or, or in our public presentations, another 25. So we have a big ecosystem. We went through each of those and said, how are we going to handle? We just didn't go into a self-preservation. And so that goes into dedication, thinking of others a little bit more without thinking less of ourselves. And so we moved into the stakeholder model. We lived into our purpose. How can we start changing that perception, but leading with trust? We have 13 trust behaviors. And if you were to work with, with us, and, and I also own up to this, we had to do a layoff. When you lose 30% of your business, yet in, in a month, yet 70% of your cost is in employees for professional service, there is no choice. We did not have PPP. We are not eligible for PPP because we have a private equity partner. So that just wasn't an option. And we had to live into, we must remain profitable to get through. 
But ironic, not ironically, today with this commitment to our guiding principles or commitment to the, the uh, stakeholder model, yes, we tried to handle the layoffs with dignity in the ways we can. We've even had some employees come back, right? We not only made it through it, but today we are growing again, a very different company. All of our sectors have changed. It's, it's almost not the same sector mix that we used to work in, but we're stronger and we're larger than we were just 12 months ago. Thank you, Curtis. Um, Bob Whipple has a to this where he wants to know if you agree that values do the most good when it's in, it's difficult, it's inconvenient, or it's expensive to follow them. And did you see that that this past year when you kept emphasizing the values and the purpose of the company through the challenges of 2020? Um, what what I can say is if you're not adhering to your values all along they become more expensive when the adversity shows up. But at a company like Improving, it wasn't like we just said, oh, here's the values that are on the wall. Now, no, it's here's who we are, here's who we have been. We have weekly standups where we discuss this for years now, our guiding principles, holding people up on how they exemplify. So, I would say in our particular case that they were probably as much as the reason we got through it with the least amount of expense as also being um, expensive. And what I want to encourage you is no matter where you are today, if your values aren't pervasive, if your identity as a company and who you are and what you stand for is not pervasive, the time is today to start that. We talk about these weekly. There isn't a town hall that goes by, whether it's a local town hall in one of our 14 offices across uh, North America, or whether it's at the global where these are not at our forefront. So I wanna encourage that today because they guide you. You don't need as much leadership. You don't have to have as much management when all these things are guiding decisions around us. I think there's so much insight to that point, Curtis, that if you want your values to apply in difficult situations, you need to emphasize them in the positive situations when things are good, because that's, as you said before, when you establish your character that is revealed in the difficult times rather than developed in the difficult times. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give a very small practice, for instance, for years. And when I say years, decade, or so, one day a week, we take our values. We have something called a passport. You read the value, how it's written. So when I talk about, you know, excellence is not an occasional act, but a consistent habit. These are the real words we use, things like that. You use the real words, and then you give a person that exemplified them that week. And we, every single week, we have a stand up in the different offices that are, uh, this has happened at different levels where people are sharing that information. And so not only are you building somebody up by saying, look how they lived into your guiding principles, you're also repeating the language. And when you do that once a week for 15 minutes, you would be surprised how pervasive your, your identity and values come. And that's just one small practice. Right? We have entire initiatives led at the highest level, people that report into me for this 
for both our trust, what we call our trust initiative and our conscious capitalism initiative. So imagine a thousand person and we only have two initiatives that are like this. One is focused on how do we establish trust with all of our stakeholders all the time, these 13 behaviors, trust behavior, uh, the trusted advisor. And then the other is how do we live into being a conscious business? And we educate people, things like that. So this is as pervasive as it gets and I'm very happy it's not lip service. It is true leaning into what this is. Now let's pivot beyond just your employees and talk about your other stakeholders that you have, clients, suppliers, others in the community. What are you seeing with them right now in getting through 2020 in general, and especially if any of them are picking up conscious capitalism more now with everything that's happened? Yeah, all over American Airlines, what's our largest client? And as you can imagine, they are still really struggling. And, and this is something beyond their control at, at any point. And, and one of the things we did was we were proactive with them. We are consultants, but we proactively went back into them and volunteered to reduce our rates. We actually reduced our rates during the pandemic to where we were losing money. So that might be one of those uh, mentions there where it was expensive for us. We took our largest client at the time and reduced our rates to where we were losing money with our largest client. But you know what? They were, they were down. They had been kicked. What, what else are our conscious businesses uh, supposed to do? Um, there are other uh, examples of, of that as well. We had... Um, uh, we had suppliers. We made sure that each of our suppliers, it didn't matter if we were getting paid or not. And yes, many of our clients were not paying us over this period of time. And we were, we actually started borrowing money, making sure that we were able to pay our suppliers faster than we were being paid. That's one of the stakeholder models. This is a, this is a dangerous game though to play it, it but it, it's, it is again is give or take because what happens if we never got the money if we weren't in this but what I can again something I can mention is that when you try to rise above right the situation you think about who you are who you want to be who you want to stand uh, for or what you want to stand for and live into that I'm going to take another one of our customers and I love to see I would say prior to the uh, pandemic they were unable to kind of live into the conscious model. They loved it. And the reason why they were unable to live into the conscious model was because they were struggling making profit. They were one of the few businesses or a small portion of businesses that the pandemic, they tripled their business within three months. And they have stayed at that level. But a perfect example, again, of what Andrew mentioned is a purpose beyond making profit. This allowed them to enter the realm of a profitability state, which now I'm gonna make an argument that they are investing more into the communities, more into the things around Dallas than most companies I even know. They needed that profit to live into their purpose. And please, if you take something away from this, Take that message away. You need the profit to live into the purpose. And these things go hand in hand and integrate together. It's, it is not one 
at all expenses over the other. It is not profit at all expense over, uh, over purpose, and it is not purpose at all expense over profit. They play together. And that was encouraging, by the way. This member is now part of our CEO forum. We have a CEO forum in Dallas where there are 12 CEOs that get together. We meet, just met on Monday actually, on, and we discuss how we're using these principles um, uh, to get through this. So it was very encouraging to see story after story of these conscious businesses playing into that. So Karen has a follow-up to this about one stakeholder in particular. You mentioned you have a private equity firm. Yes. Uh, can, do you think that private equity can be conscious and, and what can we do to work with uh, investors like that to be conscious? Wow. This might be more of a, a question for a limited group here, but what a great question, Karen. I wouldn't uh, expect anything less from you. I know Karen. Um, it is, and when we actually brought on our, our private equity partner, we got very disillusioned. We were looking for one for probably 18 months, maybe 24. And I remember sitting down with my partner in, in December going, I give up. I just give up. We're just on our own. And I got a call that January from somebody that just said, give us a chance, give us one meeting. And I said, you get one meeting, one hour. I, I told him I'm disillusioned, but it was a private equity. But over that period of time, and we got to know this group. And even though they did not know about conscious capitalism at the time, they absolutely know now. I was like, oh my gosh, these are people that are subconscious conscious capitalists, even in as a private equity group. There were things like at improving, we had a shared equity model. I'd given away 80 cent, uh, 87% of the company to our employees. And these were voting shares. I just want that to sink in, meaning only 50% of that 87% could vote me off the island because these were real voting shares and things like that. But that was part of the uh, living into the values that we had. They embraced that model. Now they still have a majority ownership, but very few private equity will allow this huge set of, of equity holders. They were paying fees for us. So they gave all that almost every other private equity would be like, no, those fees are on you. They assume some of the indemnity. All the clues were there for us to say, wait a minute, this partner's different. They also started with their values on their first presentation and left it at that. So there are companies out there, there are private equity groups that will emphasize these. Now they are about making money. Ironically, the purpose of most private equity groups is not to make money for themselves. In some case it is, but often in this case it's institutional. It is to make money. People's retirements rely on this and things like this. So this is a careful one, but there are private equity groups out there that act differently. And we have found one. I, I know of others in the group as well that participate, Satori Capital, Cranmere, others like that. So um, I just wanna say that yes, but they're far and few between. And they have been a great partner throughout this whole thing. 
Now, you, you've mentioned improving values a number of times, and Mary Boland wants to know, what are the top three values at improving? Okay, I've mentioned them. First is our commitment to excellence, that it's not some occasional act, but it's a consistent habit. And there are guiding principles underneath that as well that kind of guide us on our daily uh, actions, like continuously exceed the expectations of all of our, our stakeholders, continuously build trust right along these as well. The second one is involvement. Our company is not an eight to five company. We tell that you do not come to work at eight and leave at five. And there is something that's called your work life and your family life. I believe in work life integration, which is a very different and more comprehensive concept than work-life balance. It is, it's beyond that. It's an integrated life where we have work and we have family and we have faith and we have uh, uh, health and, and love and, and many of these things. So in that regard um, uh, as well, it becomes very important to me that, that this business, that we are involved in it. And so, our success is a consequence of our collective involvement is, is our second one. So excellence, involvement, dedication. If you are a self-oriented person, we are not the company for you. And that's a lot of people. And it doesn't mean that we don't think of ourselves. Think about how we, our weird way of defining dedication, thinking of others a little more without thinking less of ourselves. right? 55, 45 is just great. Quite frankly, thinking of others 40 and uh, and yourself 60% is gonna work inside of our company. But if you're gonna think of yourself 80% of the time at the expense of others, and you only do uh, think of others 20, you are gonna feel so uncomfortable at improving, it's not funny. So it, it, again, that's our third one. Those are who we are. A long time ago, we asked our stakeholders, who are we? Not who do we wanna be, who are we? And that is, and that's where we, our customers said, this is who you are. Our one aspirational value is building trust. I can talk about the 13 behaviors that have to guide our, and this is out of a Stephen Covey book, and um, everything from talking straight to um, uh, writing wrongs, practicing accountability, demonstrating respect. There's a whole slew of these. And that's our one aspirational value. We will probably never be able to live into perfect trust and that's what makes that a great value is that guess what? We're always gonna fail at some point. I may be rubbing some people wrong right now. I'm not trying to, but I might be. And, um, and, and I can assure my intent is good. So those are our core values. Three, we call our identity because it's who we are and one trust uh, aspirational. And I'll add this, we have one commitment as a leadership. And if you're gonna be in the executive ranks at improving, you must commit to creating a great place to work for our employees, part of this work-life integration. It's really life integration. And um, by creating, we say that we do this through five things for employees. First, we remain positive and fun. And if you are not a positive person and you are leading a company, just name one person that was your favorite leader, favorite executive of all time that was really negative oriented most of the time. I've never had somebody give me the answer, never. So we must be, there is somebody that we did not promote, very loyal individual, but we did not uh, promote them for more than 15 years because they struggled with being on the negative side of things. 
that we were patient, we were. Now this person's actually very positive, but positive and fun. We share in the success of the company. I already talked about sharing equity, but we also do some profit share um, as well. We also share in the acknowledgements and, and the accolades, uh, honest, open and honest communication. And we foster lifelong personal and professional relationships and then finally creative ways to learn and grow. So we create a great place um, to work through those five commitments. Those employees can expect the values of the company along with uh, an employee can expect of its leaders, the values of the company, plus that commitment, great place to work, positive and fun, uh, open honest communication, lifelong personal professional relationships, creative ways to learn and grow and sharing in the success of the company. And if you can't tell by now, this is, again, it's not lip service. This is who we are. This is what we talk about all the time. And I am not the only person at Improving can talk about our values this way. I'm curious, Curtis, uh, you know, because I think that building a, building that kind of culture, more and more uh, employees are, are, you know, trying to go towards those types of companies that, that you know, they, they want to be able to learn and grow. So it can be a you know, talent attraction retention strategy. Uh, you know, it impacts the that that's one of the ways that I think conscious capitalism impacts the bottom line. You know, you're you're getting the best employees and they're and they're more engaged. Um, I, I'm curious though, maybe what what is it that you hear from fellow business leaders and, and Alexander, feel free to jump in as well. Um, you know, that what's keeping conscious capitalism from becoming more mainstream? Because it, it's it's clearly uh, it, it's clearly helping the, the the bottom line for for you and for so many others, but it 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 hasn't it hasn't maybe reached. Hopefully, we're on the way, but it hasn't reached that critical kind of tipping point. And Alexander, maybe I'll let you answer this. I have some thoughts as well, but please start it off, Curtis. I'm curious to hear what you think. <laughs> All right. So, um, if if I understand the what is getting in the way, what are some of the the barriers? And, and one of the barriers tends to be another saying of mine is vision without execution is hallucination. I very rarely meet somebody that doesn't agree with the principles we're talking about, to be honest, right? Business is a force of good. And, and look at this, all of the stakeholders, right? It, but if we don't have the means to execute, then, then really we we're putting ourselves at a disadvantage. I say vision without um, execution is hallucination. It's just some dream out there that, that's not gonna happen. So the fourth pillar of conscious leadership becomes very important. And one of those things, I mentioned this awareness and empathy, but something else we emphasize is we must be able to do and put in the work or we must be able to inspire others to put into work. And we are in the early stages still of this because this is this is not a five year initiative. This is not a 10. We're probably talking a 20, a 30 year horizon. And yes, the ideas, we are in the early adoption stage, if you are wondering, but we are gathering our inspirational leaders. We are gathering the people that are going to inspire more and more. And if you look at the growth trends, Alexander has a lot to be proud of, in my opinion, of where the conscious business community here is going and the fact that 
there will be some consolidation over time. You, you have B Corp and you have Roundtable and you have so many of these other things coming. You can feel the force gathering more. And I just think it's time to be quite honest. I think the biggest barrier is time. And one more thing, there's a stigma about capitalism that creates a headwind, which is very unfortunate. You, you might have one or 2% of businesses that just act in their own interests all of the time, right? Yet, and then the, the populace as a community is not aware enough to say, we need to stop holding up those 2% as the bad cases and let's hold up these 15% that are really doing this, these firms of endearment as that's the, uh, you know, that's where we're gonna go. People have a propensity to focus on the negative and not on the positive. That's a reality of human nature. And it's about a five X to one multiple, which is unfortunate. That's a strong headwind, but we're gonna get through it. I really believe that. <laughs> and I think Alexander has a lot to be proud of. Well, I appreciate that, Curtis. And but I really am going to emphasize that I think everything Curtis shared is on point. And we'll just add that this concept, conscious capitalism, the term is only a little over a decade old, which is not long in the history of economic thought and the alternative theories of how to interpret capitalism business that conscious capitalism has rejected and is offering a different interpretation of a decade ago. The idea of having a higher purpose in business and taking care of all of your stakeholders rather than just focusing on shareholders was not taken seriously in boardrooms. It was not presented at conferences. It was something the media decried rather than elevated. And the fact now that, oh, especially over the past year, we see media outlets talking time and time again about businesses taking on higher purpose and adopting a new stakeholder orientation seeing the business roundtable change its statement on the purpose of the corporation from serving shareholders to having a higher purpose and serving all stakeholders. Even the World Economic Forum now talking about stakeholder orientation and stakeholder capitalism. We have seen a dramatic shift in a relatively short period of time. And it is because, as Curtis said, we need time with this. And like he also said as well, I'm gonna build on, we need more examples of conscious capitalism in practice that we elevate and share with others because we need more data points to say this isn't just an abstract theory. This isn't just something that people wish were the case and would be really nice, but it actually plays out in practice. And the only way you do that is by pointing to example after example after example until you, until you convey to whoever you're communicating with that this actually is the norm for successful businesses, whether they realize it or not. And it's and businesses that run on these principles are indeed more successful than those that are not on it. I, I will share that if you wanna go really in depth in this, I think Stephen Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, lays out an amazing framework, not just for paradigm shifts in science, but paradigm shifts in business and what we're doing here as well. We need to present enough data points and examples of businesses that are running these principles that it challenges the old theories so much so that people realize they need to reinterpret the way they think about business, which is exactly what conscious capitalism is doing. And we are picking up momentum. So I think Curtis is right that in 10, 20 years, we are on path to see that this become the norm. In 2020, we may look back and see as a tipping point for that.
Love that. Yeah. And, and I, I second that book recommendation. Definitely. Uh, definitely. I, I hope anyways, we're, we're at that, uh, at that precipice of a, of a paradigm shift. Um, I do also want to kind of lead into to one of the questions that, that was asked um, from, from Jim Armstrong, kind of talking about, I, like, I, I am, am, am very uh, inspired by this, by this vision of the future and, and, and where we want to go. And, and I think that's, that's why many of these people on, on the call here today uh, are, are inspired or, or at least curious about this, this movement and, and what a more conscious capitalism could look like. But we also have, have to look at where we are presently and, and maybe some of the, some of the history that, that led us there. And, 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 and you know, when we're, when we're looking at really high levels of, of inequality, you know, some, some of the, the highest levels of, of inequality of, you know, since the, since the Gilded Age, and, and many are calling this the, the second Gilded Age, and, and capitalism has certainly played, played a role in that because of the way, um, you know, historically, it has sometimes exploited, um, exploited workers or exploited the environment. Uh, you know, Jim, uh, Jim Armstrong is even, even, you know, tying it into to, to slavery and, and the role that it, that it played in, in the growth of capitalism and the growth of, of our country and in and, and our country's wealth, frankly. Um, so I, I'm curious from, from your perspective, um, you know, I'll, I'll hand this to, to either one of you, how you want to address it, but how does capitalism deal with, with that history as it moves into the future? And, and I'm not sure if, if you're really focusing on the diversity and inclusion aspect of this. I think that's what you're asking about, but you didn't come out and quite say this, um, even though I think there were a lot of implications. And, and I'll take a first um, stab at answering this question. Ironically, in the technology field, we are in the midst of the challenges you, you were talking about. Not a slavery challenge per se, but when you look at um, the diversity mix inside of the technology industry as a whole, there are not one, like many of them have maybe one demographic that's really underrepresented, but, but wow, we actually struggle more than others. We, the African American, or um, in our case, let's call it the black because we're international community, right? They are underrepresented in the technology field vastly. But Hispanics are actually underrepresented even more by almost a factor of two. And then yet women are underrepresented. And one of the things that we are doing right now is 2020 is a great time to paint the picture. And we have a 10-year vision. And our 10-year vision has a few things as part of it. And if we're going to change the perception of the IT profession as a whole, which is part of our profession and leading into trust, how do we also use our initiatives in the long game, right? Like I said, 10 years, this allows us to have long-term plans of really tackling these complex issues of diversity in such a great test bed as technology with women, Blacks, and Hispanics in general, and truly become inclusive and elevate our game in, in a massive way to change the perception. So it's actually living into our vision now on a grander scale. 
And I think that's an example of the potential that conscious capitalism offers to address the challenges that we're facing today, which includes inequality, discrimination, and countless other social problems. It's going to take businesses that adopt a higher purpose, that are looking at all of their stakeholders, not a select group of them, and really lean into that consciousness in their leadership and culture that are going to pay attention to these issues, that are going to come up with the creative solutions and work with their stakeholders in order to find the way through for this. Conscious capitalism is the path forward to address these challenges that I think that when we see more businesses adopt these principles, we're going to see more discourse, more creativity to solve, and more of a commitment to address and solve these than if we don't adopt conscious capitalism. I personally believe we're past some tipping points already, right? When you think about fundamental capitalism, let's just go to the root cause of, uh, I mean, the root effects of economics and capitalism. Any business that would make a decision that actually was discriminatory or prejudice is putting itself at a disadvantage. I just want to just meaning the, and there are enough companies that are really saying, why would I put myself at a disadvantage by being discriminatory, things like that, that we are getting to a tipping point that I personally believe those businesses that are discriminatory, they're on their way out. And, and I, I would say I might be sad, I'm, I'm not sad to see that they are on their way out. Why would I be sad, right? That that is part of capitalism in, in its purest form. And I also think that when you look at some of the other uh, things that we are facing as a community and nation, um, we have some headwinds here. One is polarization, this righteousness concept that we're talking about. When I'm a very much of a centrist, when I talk with the, the friends of mine that are, are more left oriented, they tend to be polarized one way. On the right, they're polarized another. And the irony is they all believe in the same thing. They all believe that diversity is good. They all believe that inclusion is good. So where are we going wrong in our polarization? People want change now and sometimes more love, more patience, because I assure you, literally, I do not know a single business leader. I don't think I am isolated, but I do not know a single business leader that does not believe in the concept of more diversity and more inclusion. We, we tend to get wrapped around this axle of, we have the right solution and they don't. How about we just come together and, and agree that we want these things and take small steps and 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 make a better world for everybody. And, and I'm going straight and I believe business, not government is the way we're gonna do that. Maybe I'm an optimist, but I really believe that business is the way we're gonna do that. All right, um, this, this, might, um, this might lead into that then, because I, I think that, you know, your last point there, especially as we're, you know, trying to whether whether it's through business or government or how how are we making how are we making change in our society? We have uh, a question here from Steve Hanmer, who is the head of of a uh, of the what what's called the IPSED, uh, the Institute for Poverty Studies and Economic Development here in Rochester, and and we in Rochester uh, have some of the highest concentrations of poverty in the country. Uh, you know, some of our suburbs are are doing doing pretty well. 
And, and in the city, we have some, some of the highest concentrations of poverty, highest concentrations of childhood poverty, um, really, uh, really disparate uh, impacts and, and levels of opportunity just a few miles you know, down the road from each other. And so Steve is asking really about um, you know, upward mobility and this kind of notion of the American dream. And, and he's quick to note that you know, certainly there, there's many people that, that were never, uh, you know, people of color and in other groups that, that weren't really uh, included in that American dream and that ability to, to kind of build generational wealth. But, but even so today, um, you know, upward mobility is, is at some of its, its lowest levels. And so um, can conscious capitalism uh, be a part of overcoming kind of these increasing levels of poverty and, and just differing uh, levels of opportunity that are kind of you know consuming whole swaths of society, he says, and uh, you know people want to talk about some of the good things that are going on in capitalism. Can we address? Can can business be a part of addressing uh, these high levels of inequality and, and creating more more widespread opportunity for Americans? I, my simple answer is yes, right? I believe that it's an integral part of that, and I believe that it's a more effective means than. Uh, waiting on a highly polarized uh, political system that we tend to have today. And, um, and, and I think it plays into that. If you were to hear John Mackey, one of the other founders speak about it, there is also a misconception. We are winning the war on poverty and capitalism is behind it. When you look at the overwhelming statistics since the mid seventies, it is mind boggling how big we are, are are, are winning this war. We have a long way to go. That's not to say, oh, we're done because no. In fact, that can flip just as quickly as, so uh, when you hear it, it's quite inspirational go, wow. And then I got inspired by that at one of the, where he was the keynotes. So I was like, oh my gosh, I did not even know how much. And yes, we have a long way to go when we look at the bigger world. And, and one thing I would say is we need to look at a big picture as well as the small picture our stakeholders, our, our communities, our country, but conscious capitalism is beyond our country as well. I just wanna uh, mention that is we're in a business that operates in Canada, Mexico, and the US. So, right, even, even being sensitive to those and business, I believe is at the forefront. And I, and yes, I'm an optimist, maybe that's part of me being positive, right? But I actually believe, because because of the leaders I interact with, I am interacting with CEOs weekly. I do not know of the single CEO, not one. And, and I'm not saying they don't exist, but it's not the majority. It's not even the minority. This is moving forward. And I am very encouraged by that. And that I think that's what some people don't see all the time. They see the 1%, they see the 2% because that's what makes headlines. And so often I wish somehow that, that we could elevate these great success stories that are on the other side of that, that are probably even bigger success stories and get people encouraged by that. And then I think we're moving in that direction. I just don't think it's gonna be a year. And I think everybody wants a solution in a year. I think it's gonna be a, again, take a 10 year perspective and benchmark at the beginning and benchmark at the end. And I think that we're in store for some great things. And 
I just want to add on to that, even think back to what Curtis said before about improving itself, that 80% of the stock has been shared with employees at improving. That is remarkable. And that's the kind of thing that is, I think, reflective of a conscious capitalist philosophy and how businesses that are run on conscious capitalist principles are addressing issues like inequality in society today and rethinking the approach to how businesses are run and how we work on this. It's part of, it may be part of the purpose of a business, for example, Grayston Bakery in Yonkers, New York, that I know you're familiar with, Andrew, and hopefully others here are too, has reinvented the approach to HR. Instead of having long interviews and excluding individuals for not having a high school degree or having a criminal record, they just have a list in their office that people sign up for. And when there's a job opening, they call the next person on the list and give them a job, give them an opportunity. And they make a business case for this, saying that it actually cuts down their HR costs and increases their pool of talent and has led to them be a successful business, producing all of the brownies for Ben and Jerry's ice cream. That's an example of how a conscious approach can rethink HR to address issues like inequality. What Curtis did in sharing more equity with employees is a way to rethink the concept of ownership of companies in the way that people can share in the profit and success of a business. You can look at Whole Foods' practice of having a maximum pay scale for their executives. I think it's 17 or 19 to 1 that they voluntarily implemented in order to make sure that people have more equitable uh, compensation within their structures. There's so many different ways to approach this. There isn't a silver bullet to any of this, but it's companies paying attention to this, whether it's a part of their purpose like Grayston or it's a part of their culture like Whole Foods or their structure like what Improving's done that is going to lead to not only conversations about this, but substantive action. But it all starts with these principles and this approach to business and capitalism to do that. Yeah. And I also believe our current culture, the businesses that are going to get the, the best people are going to be the ones paying attention to that. Yet capitalism will come in as well, where if you want the best people, they are going to make sure that these things are happening because the entire generations now, this is more important to than maximizing their money. Money is always important in, in this society, but it's not the most important anymore when you start to look at so many people. And again, it's such an encouraging stats around that that, that give me um, hope. I just have to work on my own patience. I am one of those ones that want it tomorrow and I'm going to stop. That's unrealistic. I, I got to wait. But we can do things today. And you'd be surprised what a small step today if you take a small step every month, how far you will be in two, three years, right? Don't underestimate the power of a small step. Thank you, Curtis. And yeah, thanks Thanks for some of those examples, Alexander. Um, actually, quick quick shout out to Mubarak Bashir, who's who's on the call. He's on our uh, on our board at Conscious Capitalism Rochester and, and is the, the local director here of, of one of the first Kind of pilot programs of Grayston Bakery outside of Yonkers. So, so we are we are lucky to have Mubarak kind of leading the charge here in Rochester to bring bring some of those opportunities. Uh, so we're really excited about that. And and maybe just uh, just kind of a, a question for for both of you. In, in in addition to like 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 all of these folks that are on the call and, and passionate about uh, raising up some of these great examples. 
Um, what else? What else can we or, or, or should we be doing? Uh, you know, to, to be able to um, not only share these, but but make some of these practices more widespread. Are 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 you hoping that that some of these things, um, you know, will just just be be based on customers, you know, going going there preferentially, or or employees going there preferentially, or are there other ways that we can uh, make some of these practices more widespread in in our communities and around the world? So I'll jump in on this one first, if it's okay with you, Curtis, because my I, I have a strong opinion on this. And what we've seen as the strategy from the history of conscious capitalism's work is for everyone on this call to share these practices, to share these stories with your stakeholders yourself. Talk about this with your employees. Talk about it with your clients. Talk about it with your investors, your community, your personal networks. Let them know that there are examples like this of business as a force for good out there and that there are innovative practices that lead to both financial success as well as the success of every stakeholder group in your business at the same time. Instead of them being at odds with each other, they work hand in hand because that is the most powerful way for people to learn new ideas from referrals and hearing it from the people that they know and trust and then get involved to invite them to events with the Rochester chapter, invite them to participate in conscious capitalism virtual gatherings, or if they're senior leaders at mid-market companies, we have a new program now, the Senior Leader Network, specifically to connect them with other conscious capitalist leaders around the country to learn from them, to brainstorm new ideas, and to even give their own story as an example that we can share broadly with the, with the nation and the globe of business as a force for good. So lean into sharing your own story and the story and example of others with your stakeholders, and you will have a massive ripple effect to bring about change. I would suggest something almost in the exact same realm. In each of our enterprises, each of our locations, at Improving, we actually set goals as part of our Conscious Capitalism Strategic Initiative. We must get 50 people to attend uh, the local chapter events, new people, so that we're growing the chapter. That is an improving KPI. That is not a, and if you're thinking that's across 10 offices, well, that's 500 people we're introducing in a year. And like most individuals, they just don't like to meet those expectations. They like to exceed them over and over. We even take it as far as we must get at least one new financial donor in every market that we could potentially operate in. Meaning we are constantly soliciting and exposing because the most common story that I hear over and over again is, oh my gosh, this is who I wanna be. Oh my gosh, this is who we are. And I didn't know there was a community. Our challenge is this exposure. So set metrics. You had 45 people on the call. Most of those people are probably in Rochester. What happens if you set for your membership this year, get two new people that have never been to, to come? Do you realize how quickly your this chapter would grow? And these are small steps that I'm talking about. Just get one. If two's too many, in an entire year, get one more person to come. But everybody does. 
right? Track it, measure it, make it a priority to evangelize and to expose. And that alone will create momentum, both locally and internationally. I love that. Yeah. So any 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 business owners out there, I I, I have no problem with you setting a setting an <laughs> expectation for some of your employees to come to our meetings. That's that sounds good to me. Um, but but anyone else on the call, uh, you know, in addition to, to those that that were uh, that were able to join us live, uh, we we typically get uh, another couple hundred people that that listen to the 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 podcast or check out the uh, the the link on YouTube. So feel free to also share this, this great conversation. You can always go back to some of our past conversations as well to share share some of these conversations with, with those in your network. Um, I think Curtis, you know, really sharing some of the, the, the practices that you have and, and that ownership piece is, is, as you mentioned and, and Alexander highlighted, I think is, is really important and needs to be uh, kind of a, a part of the next frontier of, of continuing to raise the bar for conscious capitalism, giving employees a, you know, a stake in the success of your company. So kudos to you for doing that. I'm really excited to see that happening more and more often. And, uh, and, and hopefully uh, we can continue to build this, this movement both, both locally at, at this grassroots level, uh, but, but as, a, as a contribution to this global movement of conscious capitalism. So I'm very grateful to, to both of you for, for joining us today and to all of those that, that joined us listening. In addition to, uh, we, we have some new members, uh, some of which were on the call, uh, Alana Cahoon, Jennifer Thistle, Sherry Vile, and, and Joseph Rowley. So, so welcome to all of you uh, and, and anyone else, again, on the call, bring, bring a friend next time or, uh, or share this, this recording with them if, if they weren't able to join this time. And, and please feel free, as always, to reach out to me with any ideas of, of local case studies and examples that we should be highlighting or, or other uh, kinds of topics or things that you'd love to hear about. And, and we are, are putting together monthly meetings and, and we're, we're now working on what our, our annual conference is gonna be. And we'll also always key you into some of the, the things that are going on at the global and, and international level in terms of some of the conferences that they're having uh, you don't need to travel, at least in, at least for, for this year, they're going to be doing another, another virtual conference. So great conversations, in addition to the one we heard today from Curtis, from, from many of the other uh, leaders in the conscious capitalism movement. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you, gentlemen, for, for joining us as well. And uh, really, really grateful for, for all that you're doing, both, uh, both to, to, to lead the movement, but also to, to live it each and every day. Thanks, as always, to all the evolutionaries out there listening across more than 30 countries around the world. We hope that you found it to be both inspirational and full of actionable insights to guide you on your own evolutionary journey. We've grown this movement entirely by word of mouth, so if you know someone who might find value in listening to this episode, we'd be deeply grateful if you'd share it with them. And of course, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening app so that you're notified as soon as we release new episodes each week. Together, we can evolve business toward a more conscious capitalism.